Timothy 5.17. Okay, why don't we stand and read together? The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is a threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Let's pray. Father, we know the custom of Genesis House is to go word by word through the, the letters that we read, and whether we have two verses or 20 verses, you have lots to say. I pray, God, now that you would, uh, um, through your Spirit, just oversee our time together as we learn to think like you and to live out our lives the way you've intended. We look forward to our time and a uh, time of encouragement to your scriptures in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as you can tell by the reading this morning, uh, we are continuing in our letter to Timothy from Paul and have moved from God's instruction for the church and how to financially provide for widows to those in spiritual leadership. And the lesson we're going to discover this morning, which is very familiar for pretty much all of you, I think, is that those who exercise spiritual leadership over the church community through the ministry of the word are to be financially provided for by that same community. Now, again, for the majority of us in here, this is nothing new. It's a topic we've covered more than once uh, in seven years at this church plant. But as you know, um, because of the way we teach and preach here, I don't have the luxury of uh, picking and choosing topics when we walk through an entire letter. And I just preach the subject matters as they unfold before me. But if you're anything like me, repetition serves me well. As sometimes, even though I know the truth, uh, the refresher does me good because I can be tempted to stray from truth on occasion and it gives me the uh, kick in the butt to go back to truth <laughs> or it gives me reassurance that I'm just walking in God's way and if I and I just I'm just a chance to give him praise for the changes in my life so again we're going to repeat uh, a topic we've spoken about before which is to uh, but basically those who spiritually invest in others are to be rewarded as such by the same people they've been invested in so I want to make, uh, make two more points of way of introduction before we jump into verse 17. First, remind you of the context in Ephesus. Remember, the church there was one filled with many problems, both theological in terms of its doctrine, and also practice in terms of how to live out the Christian life. And as we discovered together throughout the weeks, um, this is largely in part to the presence of false teachers in this church who were leading them astray. Um, they were... They were maligning the Word of God and teaching people to live contrary to the teachings of Christ and the Apostles. For example, in chapter 1, um, they were teaching the Christians there they needed to ob observe their version of the Law of Moses in order to be right with God. And, and, and Paul actually says they had no idea what they were talking about. Like, just straight up, that's how he said it. He called their teaching um, filled with myths and fables. They're basically old, um, old wives' tales. In chapter 2, he was teaching that the women there were really ditching the role of motherhood in order to, to try to take full-time positions of, as elders in the church. Um, and God's primary concern and desire for a, a female uh, who was able to be married and have, and have children was to do so. And these women were not uh, pursuing that. In chapter 4, uh, a life of asceticism was being preached. Um, these false teachers were saying, if you want to be spiritual, super holy, uh, you need to not get married. That's the path to holiness, is to forbid marriage. 
and also to forbid certain foods, don't eat this and don't eat that because it'll make you unholy before the Lord. And in chapter 5, uh, we see these ungodly widows being put on the list that shouldn't have been so. And they're financially being, being a burden to the church. And Paul says, let me teach you how to properly financially provide for those who deserve it. So with all this going on, Paul recognized that Timothy was going to have, if he's going to have any chance of bringing restoration to the church in Ephesus, correctors were going to have to be made within the spiritual leadership, and specifically dealing with the elders of the church there. And so he wanted to ensure that those lead elders who were in place, that were leading well, that were ruling well, were to be financially taken care of so they could make a living at the profession, and then therefore, because they were there for the long term, bring a presence and stability to the church that would lead to restoration. They wanted people to be paid full time so they could do their jobs, which was going to be a huge situation in Ephesus to correct. You didn't want part-time people just doing uh, these little minuscule tasks. So he wanted to make the church there a beacon of hope, uh, a light to the world and be successful for the gospel like it was under the guidance of Paul years earlier, but had gone astray with these false teachers. The second uh, thing I need to say by way of introduction is a self-disclaimer. <laughs> uh, it's always a bit awkward when you're the pastor and you're teaching people to financially provide for the pastor. Uh, it kind of seems like a self-serving um, proposition. And, but I think you know my heart and uh, my mind towards this. Again, I can't apologize for what's in Scripture and what's here in these verses. And uh, I didn't pick the order or write this Bible. So therefore, it is what it is, and so I, I make no apology for the Word of God. <laughs> okay, so with all that being said, uh, let's jump into verse 17. So I want to discuss first what Paul says regarding double honor. He says, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So what does this double honor mean? Well, we know from our study of widows that honor included financial compensation. He said in verse 3, honor widows that were widows indeed, and the context of that whole chapter was purely financial, or, or primarily financial. Um, well, and again, our context makes it clear that, um, that finances are, are thought of as well, because he talks about not muzzling the ox and that the labor is worthy of his wages. So clearly honor in this context has to do with money. So one might think then that double honor means to be paid double. If you're worthy of double honor, you're paid double. I'm going to suggest this is not what Paul has in mind here. There's no, for, for one major reason, there's no evidence in the New Testament of a two-tiered financial system for anybody in ministry. We never saw anywhere in the Bible certain elders being paid twice as much money as others. Jesus and his disciples and Paul himself never had a standard salary. Uh, for some, and then people like Christ and Paul, for example, and Timothy got double that wage. There's no evidence of that. Rather, the Greek word for honor also includes showing respect for and caring for someone, and to treat graciously or generously. For example, in Philippians chapter 2, oh, this is doing it to me again. In Philippians chapter 2, look at this. Um, but I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. So he's on the same par as Paul in terms of being a worker in the ministry. 
who is also your messenger and minister to my need. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold, him like, hold men like him in high regard. That same word, honor. Because he came close to death for, for the work of Christ. So he's to be respected and hold in high regard because he's like Paul in his ministry of the word and he almost lost his life for preaching and teaching the scriptures. So again, this is really important here that we understand this, that honor both includes both respect and remuneration. So a person who's to receive double honor then was to be both respected and paid for their work. That's what double honor would refer to in this passage. So now that we've established what double honor means, let's look at who deserved it from Paul's perspective. In verse 17 he says, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. The elders who rule well receive both respect and remuneration. Now some within Christianity, like the kingdom, think that this is two different kinds of elders within the church. Like, there's those who rule the church, and then there's those who get, uh, that preach and teach the, the scriptures. And, that, and so they're very distinct categories. Um, those who managed and those who taught. I don't think this is what Paul has in mind here, because the elder was required to do both. You actually were to be able to um, do both to do your role. First of all, if you remember that when we studied the qualification for eldership, one of the key characteristics in chapter 3, verse 4, was they had to be able to teach. They had to be able to teach. So you couldn't even be an elder if you couldn't instruct from the Word of God. And in light of the Ephesian situation, this would be super necessary. Secondly, the emphasis in verse 17 is not on different roles and functions, but on the effort they put in, or in the way they, they, they lead. He says double honor is to be given to those who rule well. So the emphasis is on the way they lead, not so much the function that they're in. So again, I think the context here is that teaching and preaching are not separate. That really, that, that to, um, to, uh, to honor those who especially work hard at preaching and teaching is just a subset of what it was to rule well. So how did one determine if they're ruling well? How do you know that? Well, to, to the word for rule in Greek is to govern or to be set over someone or appoint with authority. And the word well means rightly or correctly. So, if you're to rule well, you were to govern rightly, or to um, be in authority correctly. Now, there's two places I think we can go in the letter to help us understand what this would look like, since Paul doesn't really spell it out any further. Um, first of all, this word rule is actually found again in the elders' qualifications. When it spoke about an elder having to be able to manage his household well, because if he didn't know how to manage his own household, how could he manage the house of God? So the same word for rule is the same word for manage. So you can see then there's a management side to overseeing the church outside of preaching and teaching. That parallels, that parallels the same kind of skill needed to run one's family. So no doubt ruling well included administrative tasks and to make sure that the church was running efficiently and so on. And that, there was, that uh, there was, the affairs of the church were being directed accordingly. It wouldn't have been an a chaotic place, but a structured and ordered place. But probably the second place you'd find ruling well, uh, in a terms of a, a letter, a letter that showed the, um, sorry, a second place in which we find the uh, understanding of what it may look like to rule well was in chapter four, 
We did three sermons in chapter 4 just on what it was to be a pastor in terms of, or an elder in terms of a, a pastoral resume that looked good. One that Paul had approved of. And remember that we learned things like this. that uh, he, Paul told Timothy, you must make a continual effort to guard your doctrine and your conduct. He says, you must be willing to warn other believers about error. You're to reject any influence of teaching that did not lead to godliness. Uh, you were to live your life within the Christian community as an example of what it was to follow Christ in both speech and conduct. And you devoted yourselves to the public reading, teaching, and exhortation of Scripture for those they were overseeing. So again, if you look at that, that's, that's a, that definitely includes what it was to rule well. And for Paul, it was this teaching area that was especially critical. I mean, Paul could have spelled out in this verse specifically what he had in mind with ruling well. But the one he really picks up on is, is in the second half of verse 17. He says, especially those who work hard at teaching and preaching. Now, those, these two uh, words are critical because we all know that being able to teach those scriptures was required to be an elder. But that didn't automatically mean that you're worthy of double honor just because you, you, you had to be able to teach the Word of God. Notice where he puts the emphasis. He puts the emphasis on those who um, uh, work hard at teaching and preaching. It wasn't just a case of being able to teach the scriptures as those who worked hard at it. Those were worthy of double honor. Now just to paint a picture here, what this would have looked like. Well actually, let me backtrack. You know why this is important to me? New Testament clearly tells us that uh, this teaching the word is a spiritual gift. But he doesn't say those who have the spiritual gift are worthy of double honor, especially those who, you know, who work hard at it. He goes, it's those who work hard at it that receive double honor. The working hard was the key in the teaching and preaching. So just because you're gifted doesn't mean that you're automatically uh, qualified for double honor, to be paid for your work. Now this idea of working hard, I mean, we, get, we know what that means in our own context, but let me give you a bigger picture of what this looked like. The Greek word means to be wearied and spent from labor, to the point of being faint. Okay? All of you who've worked, if I say to you, how was your day? You go, I'm absolutely exhausted. That was just an incredibly like, hard day. That's the kind of work we're talking about here. To be wearied and spent from labor to the point of being faint. So we get this idea, this is not a part-time gig. This is not someone who puts three or four hours of study into a, on a Saturday morning to a sermon on Sunday and then walks up there and teaches. This is someone whose study and personal investment takes a toll takes a toll on them. And I was reminded of this and recently as I read Rabbi Zacharias's uh, eulogy, or not his eulogy, uh, someone from his ministry team put a, a segment on the website of what it was like to know him. And uh, the, the, con the title of the article was Four Things That Surprised Me About Rabbi Zacharias. Four things. And one of them was a fierce commitment to his call. He wrote this. I asked Ravi how he managed to continue growing in his affection for Christ throughout the decades of exhausting ministry, <laughs> working hard. I also asked how after nearly 50 years of doing the same thing year after year, working hard, <laughs> uh, he remained excellent and sharp at what he did. His reply, 
You must say no to the deadening distractions and empty amusements of this world. He said he refused to let his energy get drained by watching TV shows, sports, or spending too much time on the news. Well, that's interesting. That, was a, that, that kind of uh, stood out to me. Uh, he leaned, or he learned, no, sorry, he leaned and confessed uh, his one exception, the occasional Toronto uh, Maple Leafs game. I knew. See, not every human's perfect, you know. It's just uh, <laughs> All right. This is what's this is really important. This is what working hard looks like. And Paul makes it clear when an elder is dedicated to, to teaching and preaching in a way that works hard, he says, then they are to, to be paid and to make a living for doing so. And he substantiates this in verse 18. He says, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Now, Paul gives two reasons for why uh, hardworking, uh, ruling well elders who especially teach the Word of God should be rewarded. The first is a citation from the Old Testament found in Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. And I want to show you a video of what it looks like for an ox to thresh uh, ground. Is that the play button there? I hope so. Oh, oh there it is. Now, I will say, uh, when, it, when uh, Kevin's parents and myself and um, uh, Laurel went to Israel, they, in, Nazareth, in Nazareth they actually have a, um, a place that they developed to look like the traditional times of Jesus. And they've done a phenomenal job in making synagogues and uh, uh, having people dressed in the appropriate clothing. So they've made a mini city of the life of Naz- what it was like in the times of Jesus in Nazareth. And it's an incredible place. You don't actually feel like you're in a fake place when you're there. They've done such a good job. But one of the scenes in Nazareth is this, this donkey threshing wheat. And I'll let you see it right now. So what we have here in the threshing process is uh, the separation from the husk uh, of the grain, or sorry, of the wheat from the kernel of the grain. And so this, they, they would do it on hard packed ground, um, usually like a hard dirt packed ground. And this sled they would pull would have like um, things underneath it that were like maybe like stones and whatnot that were like attached, that were like, would then grind, grind the, the, the wheat. And it would obviously break the husks apart from the kernels of grain, and then when they were done, when you see the guy with the pitchfork, he was throwing the, the remains in the air, and the chaff, and the, the chaff was being separated from the kernel. So again, this is the process of threshing. But you notice two things in this video. You can imagine for that donkey how hard work that would be to do that for X amount of hours per day. He was working his, his or her butt off to pull that thing in a continual circle, and um, not only that, you'll notice that the donkey went to the pile there to get something to probably nibble on. Because this was hard work then, God had within his law that he didn't want a ox to wear a face mask, if you will, <laughs> yeah, right now, because he wanted the, the, the donkey to be rewarded for his labor. He wanted the donkey to be able to eat and partake in the food as he was working so hard. That was his built-in reward for doing such hard work. 
Paul's point was that if God even had built in within the law the expectation that even a hardworking ox is to be rewarded for his labor, how much more the hardworking teacher or preacher. And in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul expands on this because there he gives the exact same verse, but he expands on it. And here's what he says. God is not concerned about the ox, is he? Or is he speaking for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written. Because of the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? So again, God loved and you know, didn't allow the ox to go without food in his labor. And he says, is God concerned for the ox? Like not compared to the, the person who's preaching and teaching the word of God. The irony of this was that Paul had not been provided for by the Corinthians. So this was actually a rebuke, a reprimand to them. This wasn't rhetorical questions in terms of like, you know, congratulating them. They had actually neglected taking care of him. And he actually said, I've had to rob other churches to be supported by, to do ministry amongst you. The second reason uh, that uh, they were to uh, financially provide for those who taught and made a living at the gospel, I should say, was found because Jesus said so. Jesus said so. In Luke 10, 7, he actually said, the laborer is worthy of his wages. Those were Jesus' exact words. The context there is that Jesus is about to send out 70 disciples throughout the cities and towns of Israel in order to proclaim the gospel. And before sending them out, he makes this comment to them. Oh, I don't have it down. Okay, that's okay. He basically says, take no money belt, you know, uh, and when you get into the houses, just eat whatever they set before you and accept any provisionary care that they give to you because the worker is worthy of his wages. The laborer is worthy of his wages. So he was teaching them a principle. You don't need any money with you. Don't take any extra clothing or anything because it's going to be the responsibility of the people when you go into their homes to be provided for you. And that's a great lesson they would have had to learn when he died and was resurrected and then they had to go out because now they didn't have to stress about uh, whether they're going to be provided for because it had already been demonstrated in their earlier lives that those things would occur. So Jesus' mandate was, you have the right to receive provisionary care when you preach and teach and, and proclaim my word. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 rephrased it this way, the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. And the key word there is living. Those who make their living. God's ultimate goal is for those who rule well and to work hard at preaching and teaching make a full-time living. That's why also I like the word laborer in verse 18. You think of a construction worker with a jackhammer who, do, who does that day in and day out. That's the kind of way he sees someone in full-time ministry. Now the timing of this verse is really important in our denomination. You won't be aware of this because these are things that happen behind the scene, but I'll let you in on something. In our denomination right now, in the Free Methodist Church of Canada, the majority of people in ministry right now are bivocational. On a percentage scale, the majority of people serving as pastors today in our denomination are bivocational. They hold two jobs. And I've been part of different meeting, meetings uh, where there, some people stand up and say, this is a good thing. And other people stand up and go, we're not sure if this is a good thing, but this is the reality in the, the denomination. Um, but some especially lean uh, towards the idea that it's a good thing and it's, and it's the new norm we have to get used to it. Um, 
I've stood up on two occasions and actually said this is a bad thing and we're actually going against God's mandate. Um, this is in front of the spiritual leadership of our denomination. I said this is not a good thing. We're going the wrong way if you think bivocational is God's way. The trump card they throw on me all the time is Paul. They say, well, Paul in Acts chapter 18, when he went into Corinth, he was tent making. And so therefore, it can't be a bad thing because Paul was a tent maker and a preacher. And my response is always the same. Not this harsh, I do it in a loving way, but you must have missed verse 5 in Acts 18, where you're quoting from. And I'll read it to you. Acts 5 says this, When Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, as he was making tents, by the way, Paul began devoting himself completely to the Word. <laughs> so for Paul, making tents and preaching the Gospel was second best. He only did it because people like Corinth weren't providing for him. So he had to. <laughs> but as soon as the money came in, he went back to full-time making. So imagine being Paul's customer. Uh, you know, on, let's say it's like, you know, April 20th and you have your uh, tent to him and uh, you've done some work for him and then two months later you have a repair to do and you come to Paul and say, can you fix my tent? He says, sorry, I can't. I've quit tent making. I'm not doing it. Go see Priscilla and Aquila because they're still in the trade. I'm preaching and teaching the God, words, uh, words, God's word full time now. Another verse I've used in my defense of this, and this is really important, church, is found in Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. I'll give you the context. When God divided Israel into 12 tribes, the tribe of Levi did not receive land in the same proportion as everyone else. They got a tiny strip, kind of like a small community garden type thing, but uh, everybody else got huge portions of land. God's intention was that these men would be provided for by the Israelite community and they would just work in the service of the tabernacle and the temple. And the nation would support them so they could do full-time ministry. He didn't want them farming fields and doing full-time ministry. He wanted them fully in the tabernacle and in the temple eventually when it was built. If you want to look this law up, this command is in Numbers 18.21. Fast forward a few centuries and Nehemiah notices something within Israel when they come back from the land and were rebuilding everything. Look at what Nehemiah chapter 13 says about the situation. I discovered that the portions, the tithes of the Levites, had not been given to them. So that the Levites and the singers who were performing the service had gone away each to his own field. So I reprimanded the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? This is a reprimand because they've gone to the fields when they should be full-time in the temple doing their service. So you, this is what's going on. And then look at what God says is the cause of the whole thing in Malachi. From the days of your fathers, you've turned aside from my statutes, you've not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings, you are cursed with the curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. They're just bringing partial tithes. <laughs> so that's why they're back in the fields. Uh, so, that, that's, so that there may be food in my house, and test me now on this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. 
Again, the Levites returned to the fields because they weren't having the tithes fully coming in. They had to become sort of, uh, not even probably bivocational, although some of them probably were, but just almost full-time farmers. And God accused them of robbing him. Not providing for the spiritual leadership was to God for say, to say, you are robbing me. That's how tight the connection is. Because God's the one who established his church and leadership to be in place. And they have a particular role to, to, to play. It's interesting, I mentioned this earlier, but I wonder if uh, Paul took the word rob from Malachi. Because when he accused the court in 2 Corinthians 11, he says, I've had to rob other churches in order to be supported in ministry. And I wonder if he just used the prophetic language and that, uh, that's, and that was a very important wordplay that he used. One more verse just to think about though. Remember Peter and the boys? They're in Galilee after the resurrection. They've already seen Christ on a few occasions in the resurrection. And there, it's, um, days have gone by and it's, uh, it's in John actually, the end of John. And uh, they're back in their boats fishing in Galilee after their resurrection appearances. And Jesus appears to them and basically says, uh, what are you doing, boys? What are you doing here? In other words, yeah, you were serving me for three years in full-time ministry, being provided for, and now you're back in your boats? You think the resurrection meant you're going to go back to fishing? Uh-uh. There's work to be done. And then Pentecost comes and he says, you know what, you're going to be my witnesses in Judea and all of Galilee and Samaria and all the world. They went into full-time, they went back to full-time ministry after going back to bivocational work. Because <laughs> they didn't understand the resurrection and what it meant. But he clear, clarified it at Pentecost and then they got it. You know? But here's the point. Um, even Jesus, really, like these men, these fishermen went back to bivocational work and Jesus would have nothing of it. So this is really, I, I, by the way, when I gave these defenses, um, they, all I got back was, well, that's like basically lots to think about, but there was no rebuttal. How do you argue with that? I don't know. I don't think you can. I think it's appropriate at this juncture point to say that I'm incredibly thankful for the way that you've all supported me and my family over these seven years. And this September, we're going into our eighth year as a church plant. This is an absolute rarity within a denomination that I'm a full-time pastor now and that a church plant who was started up by vocational to go to full-time ministry, that is like a, like a unicorn <laughs> in, the, in the church world, in today's culture. I don't take it for granted. I think it's an, a tremendous privilege and honor to be blessed in those ways. And this blessing now extends beyond me because when we are in surplus in our church, we can use the extra surplus to pay people like Roger and Stuart and Jeff and Peter and Tyson and Dave Panton when they come and preach here. Because we don't want to muzzle them as oxes either. <laughs> we wanted, they labored that week to, to, to get that message done. And we want to honor them as such. And I know from these guys' point of view, you know, how much extra stress and hard work is it when we add a sermon to your week on top of your regular job? Could you imagine being bivocational and having to do that sermon every single week? But if, we, but if you wanted to go into full-time ministry, what if we freed you up and gave you a full-time salary so that's all you had to do? What a stress reliever. What a stress reliever. Anyhow. So again, let's conclude with this. Remember why the context is so important. Let's get back to 
the very reason this is written. The false teachers are bringing error into the church, and they're in putting the, in the, the gospels um, is at risk. The, the Ephesian church is no longer a light in the community like the way they used to be under the, the leadership of Paul. And so these false teachers are inept and inadequate. They wanted the gospel to be restored and to get Ephesus back to the way it used to be. And so the way to solve one of the problems with the elders in the community was for the Ephesian people to start honoring those who were worthy of double honor, especially those who worked hard at teaching and preaching. Two lessons, actually three lessons for you today. Straightforward. Oh, there you go. I did have that Luke passage up. I had it in the wrong order. There you go. Okay. Lesson one. Obviously, I didn't work hard enough this week. <laughs> uh, lesson one. Double honor does not refer to double pay, but respect and remuneration. I thought it was remuneration, but I looked it up in spelling, and it actually is M before the N. So I learned something this week in terms of grammar. But it's remuneration, and that is uh, what I think double honor is referring to here. All, all pastors are to be honored. All elders are to be honored. But those who rule well, and especially those who work hard at teaching, are to receive double. They're to be paid for their work. Number two, elders who rule well, and especially work hard at preaching and teaching, are to be financially provided for by those they minister to. One of the hard things uh, to watch, and I used to, I've done this before in the past, but as I've learned in my Bible understanding, uh, over the, like, I've been a Christian now for 16 years, I think, something like 16 years on that mark. Um, one of the things I've noticed is a lot of people who attend churches who are being spiritually invested in give their money elsewhere. They give their money elsewhere. And I'm not saying we shouldn't support missionaries and do things like that, but often they leave the person that who's doing the majority of the spiritual oversight uh, out. <laughs> and so the tithe goes somewhere else, or the free will offering goes somewhere else. Again, uh, um, Janice and I support other people in ministry and, do, and uh, do other things like that. But ultimately, we first give to, um, to our church, and that's what we do first. And so, uh, yeah, again, uh, we want to always make sure your priority is whoever's investing in you the most spiritually is where you put your money. And everything else after that can be free will offerings and, and love offerings and gifts. But again, um, this is important because um, you may have two people that are equally investing in you. Well, then divide it. That's fine. But divide it. That's okay. Uh, Dick Lucas, uh, I've quoted him many times, referred to him many times. When I saw him in England, I gave him a love offering of, a, of a, like a, like a, like a, you know, some money and said, you don't know this, but you're spiritually investing in me. You do this because uh, I listen to your sermons every single week and I've learned a ton from you. And he was like trying to reject the money. No, you're a guest in Canada, from, you know, in my country. I don't need this. I'm retired and etc. But I'm like, no, you, this is scriptural. I, I owe you this because of, because of how much you've tra trained me in my ministry. You don't even touch my life. I noticed Dan did the same thing, gave him a love offering. But it didn't mean that we stopped. I did not stop giving to the church that month here either, just because that was occurring. <laughs> I just divided my money that month. Lesson three. 
Although bivocational work may be necessary at certain seasons in ministry, once the financial means to step into full-time employment exist, one should do so. Paul did that with tent making. God was, through the prophets, says, you get the Levites back, full-time work. None of this bivocational stuff. Is it necessary at certain seasons of life? Yeah. Is it a sin to be bivocational? No. But it's not God's preference. We have no scriptural evidence that his preference is bivocational work. We have lots of scriptural evidence to say his desire is full-time workers. Because to shepherd a church and to spread the gospel is a huge commitment and you need all the hours and energy you can to do so. Um, anyhow, so enough said on that. So if you, this might help you though. If you ever get into conversation with someone who thinks that bivocational work is the way to go. Again, I, don't, I never put down someone who's bivocational because I was for four and a half years. It was necessary in the beginning. But once the financial means are there, you look to move towards full-time ministry. And that should be the goal of the pastor and the church that's employing them. Okay, so two verses. Lots said, but I think there's a, uh, hopefully there's something new uh, you've thought, never thought about before in the way you've approached, uh, you know, how we support uh, people like myself and Dan Jansen and, and whatnot. But uh, let, let's have a, have a dialogue and see what, how the words touched your life.